for yet another week. I think I think show number 33. Welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark DeBlore, or whoever and whatever you know me as. Uh, for those of you just joining us for the first time, and I know every week there are more of you who tune in, and, and we really appreciate it. I appreciate it, and I hope we're entertaining you and educating and enlightening you. Behind the Lens is just that. We go behind the lens and below the line, film, TV, even stage. Directors, cinematographers, screenwriters, composers, and yes, we actually do talk to actors too. Uh, so a lot of our interviews are live. Some of them are, are exclusives that are pre-recorded. My, my typical cinematic cohort, I have an empty chair next to me today, uh, Greg's Rizavazdi. Greg is actually out at a press junket today doing interviews while I am here live on air. Um, but that's okay. I won't bore you too much. You won't have to listen to me too much because we have a jam-packed show of callers today. Um, our first interview today will be with Juan Feldman, writer-director of a new film starring Marsha Gay Harden called Afterwards. Um, this is one of the most beautiful films I've seen all year, and within five minutes I wanted to go rushing to the passport office to get a passport and then go to a travel agency and book a trip to Costa Rica. So we're going to hear from Juan about this beautiful, it's a very quiet, intimate story. It, it's got romance. It's got the sweeping tropics of Costa Rica. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film on so many levels. At 1130, the halfway mark, we've got a good friend of mine. We became friends at the L.A. Film Festival producer Ian Coyne. And his feature film at LAFF was Aram Aram. He is now producing another film, a short film called The Canary. It debuted last night at Holly Shorts Festival in Hollywood. Ian's going to be joining us along with his writer-director, Carl Herman, and cinematographer, director of photography, Noah Rosenthal. Those of you that are fans of Matthew Lillard know Matthew's work. His directorial debut was Fat Kid Rules the World. Noah was Matthew's cinematographer. And the difference between uh, the two films, between The Canary and Fat Kid, shows a great depth and range with what Noah has already at this stage of his career. So we're going to have the three of them joining us. And then we're also going to have, uh, if we have time, hopefully we'll have time, a lot of excerpts from my exclusive interview with director James Ponsalt. Many of you know James as the writer-director of The Spectacular Now, also Smashed. And End of the Tour is an incredible, personal, intimate film on uh, the life and the history at the, the end of the tour for the legendary writer David Foster Wallace. It's based on Rolling Stone writer David Lipsky's book that was written uh, in 2008 following uh, Wallace's suicide. He is the author of the book Infinite Jest, a, th uh, a hefty little 1,079 pages that rocked the world and pop culture when it came out. The film takes a very interesting take. It's a very interesting perspective, and it is out in limited release in a lot of the art house theaters, the landmark kind of theaters, the arc light type theaters. If you get a chance, see it, but you can hear a lot of, you'll be hearing later today, a lot of my interview with James about bringing this project to life and how you pick 
a certain one segment out of a man's life uh, to tell a story. But first up, uh, let's say let's give a huge shout out to Disney and Bob Iger for the D23 announcements this weekend. We are all going to be uh, benefiting from Star Wars Land uh, in Anaheim and in Orlando at Disneyland and Disney World. Yes. Okay, this is obviously the most exciting news we have ever had on Behind the Lens, according to my lovely sound engineer, Brian. He is a huge Star Wars fan. And for those of you in Florida, thank you, Chewbacca. Uh, For those of you in Florida, you're also going to get Toy Story Land. So maybe you'll see what's going on with Buzz and Jesse and Woody and Bo Peep before it even gets into theaters. But for Disney fans everywhere, this was a huge, huge, huge weekend uh, down in Anaheim at D23. A lot of incredible news was announced. Um, there, I'll have stuff later uh, later today and tonight uh, about the events up on my website, MovieSharkDeBlore.com, and in a few other places. You know, you can find my full reviews and interviews in addition to various outlets around the country or on Examiner, um, even over in overseas um you can also go directly to my website movie shark deblore d-e-b-l-o-r-e dot com and you can find archives of behind the lens video and audio uh, red carpet interviews from spirit awards la film festival various other red carpets tcm festival our classic corner uh so and it's all every day it's growing with more and more content as, as soon as i can get it all written and up there um, but last week I promised you all we started talking about the pro- uh, Gahil Gabran's The Prophet again. The new animated film is out that Selma Hayek, it has been her passion project for about eight years now. And last week you got to hear her speak very passionately about her inspiration for wanting to make the film and bring it to life. But one of the very unique things, and Greg and I have talked about it, and I talked about it again last week, is the animation calling on nine different animators to infuse their own ideas and interpret nine of the poems or passages from Gibran's book, The Prophet. Uh, The result is stunning animated artistry with all different techniques and types of painting from watercolors, pen and ink, uh, graphic style (coughs) stylings. So I had a chance to ask Selma, uh, when we were doing uh, interviews for The Prophet, about, she was so passionate about turning the book into a film, how and why did she select animation as the format? Then the second part was why animation? No? Animation, yeah. Okay. It's also a film about freedom. I think that another mm-hmm. hope for the world to be better, it's for us to break from our programming because we are educated, especially our children, to be consumers. And everything that comes at us has an agenda. And even when we watch movies, we design them to entertain you, we digest them for you, and we design things that are going to make you feel one way or think one way. 
And this film breaks all the rules of cinema. Uh, animation, no, art for me, it's a great way of freedom. The film combines poetry, um, art, you know, painting, drawing, There's, we have all kinds of things there. And uh, filmmaking, because the structure of the storytelling comes from the, you know, cinematic structure of telling a story and music. And in, I think that also the fact that we did not make it all uh, the same kind of art, it's, it's honoring the theme of freedom. Every single animator had a complete freedom to create whatever they wanted and interpret the poem how they wanted, and we did not interfere. We chose them from all over the world, from all different religions and different ages, men, women, and they bring their own perspective and they do it through art in a way that then you get to be free. You also get to be free because you're surprised every time and you don't know what to expect because there's going to be a new kind. What, what this does is like, it almost forces your brain to be malleable and open. And then you are understanding a story and then we take you out of the story and we give you information visually and through poetry and through music, but it's yours. It's for you to decide what to do with it. It's sort of like you take a journey, but inside of yourself. And I, when you see the film, I think she truly did achieve the vision that she was hoping for because the art, each panel, each frame, it is open to your individual interpretation and some of the artisans move you more than others. Uh, just in the press screening that I was at, each one of us was taking away something different and different forms of of the art uh, touched each of us in a different way or connected and resonated. So again, it is, it's Cahil Gibran's uh, The Prophet. It is out in theaters. It is in very limited release. So you do need to hunt it down. Um, social media sites, everything will be on the video uh, of Behind the Lens so that you can find it on Facebook, on Twitter, on the website, uh, and find out where screenings are because it is such a worthwhile film to see. It is truly a, a com an, immers an immersory emotional experience. And uh, directed by Roger Allers, again, who gave us The Lion King. So how can you go wrong when somebody gives you that cute little lion earlier in his career? So The Prophet see it if you can now before Juan Feldman calls us in a few minutes let's start talking about end of the tour for those of you that don't recognize the name of David Foster Wallace he was a very renowned author uh, one of his short stories he had written was brief interviews with hideous men it was made into a film trust me the film is this side of hideous um, skip that uh, he is known primarily for his, as I mentioned earlier, Infinite Jest. Infinite Jest, it's very thematic, the themes of loneliness, of suffering. Um, 
empathy is impossible due to the very nature of individual pain, but can we identify uh, so many philosophical levels, and they all stem. In reading the book, if you can plow through it, it really taps into Wallace's consciousness, into his depressive states, into his take on depressive take on the world, quite honestly. Um, David Lipsky at Rolling Stone was assigned, begged, I think, to go and interview Wallace as he was winding down the book tour for Infinite Jest. And hours and hours of tapes later, he wrote an article. Um, The interview was in 1996, 12 years later, Wallace committed suicide. And following that, you know, Lipsky wrote a book. Um, Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. A lot of this was predicated upon these these interviews, these tapes, and then it fell into the hands of James Ponsolt and Donald, Donald Margulies. Donald Margulies, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Um, he previously had written Dinner with Friends. He is brilliant. Brilliant. Um, and he took the book, he took Lipsky's book, and he created a screenplay and attached to and culled through dialogue so a lot of the dialogue in the script is the dialogue that was actually on the on the interview tapes between Lipsky and Wallace and it's an interesting thing to watch it's an even greater thing to see on to understand it unfold as interpreted by Jason Siegel who plays David Foster Wallace and now I see before I can play any of the audio of James Ponsalt we have Juan Feldman on the line to talk about afterwards. Well, welcome, Juan Feldman. How? Hello. Hello, Juan. How are you? I am doing wonderful. How are you, Debbie? I am fine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining Behind the Lens today. Thank you for having me. I am in love, as I said at the top of the show, and as I think I emailed to both Kim and Scott, your publicist, I'm ready to go to the passport office, get a passport, go to the travel agency, and buy a ticket to Costa Rica. Yes. This? Yes. Or anywhere, for that matter. No. That's the message. No. Costa Rica. It is what you and your DP, Salvador Valo, have done, and the images you put up there, each one is more beautiful than the last. Thank you. Thank you. It is a wonderful place. And it's a place that connects you with with life itself. You know, Costa Rica is a place that, and I am not from there. I am from Uruguay, hence my accent. (laughs) accent. But but Costa Rica is a place, you know, it's a very different country with no army. Um, You know, uh, their their greeting is pura vida, which is like, you know, pure life. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and the way of being and the you know, the country itself, it really connects you with, with life. So how did you, where did, and anybody that sees this film, which is in theaters and on VOD come Friday, they're going to see just how vibrant and alive this film is, from the saturated colors to the tropical forest to the metaphor that you create with butterflies and and orchids and the lens and the metaphor is undeniable in there and it's just it's a stunner but where did this story come from let let the listeners 
tell them about the story, what it is, and where it came from. And since you aren't from Costa Rica, how'd you pick Costa Rica for a location? <laughs> well, first of all, like, you know, being in Los Angeles for 20 years uh, and being from Uruguay again, you know, we're, we, you know, such a small country where I'm from, we don't have freeways, you know. And here seeing people drive to work and from work for, you know, a couple of hours sometimes, and, uh, you know, I always felt the need of telling the message about people finding whatever they like within yourself and make sure you live life before you die. So could have been any, any character, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of libraries. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I picked up a, you know, a librarian as a central character, as a person who... That's the only thing she has in life, books. And she's been living her life vicariously through other people. And this is an opportunity for her to step in the court. And, uh, I mean, you have to see the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but it is a person who has nothing and she wants to experience something, mm-hmm. even if it's in the 11th hour, like she said. And, and I think once you do that, and her motive was to kill herself, and even if it's about that, just do something, get in touch with life, and go for it. So that was the idea behind, and that is why I think it's important for people to see this film and to see what you like, because it will be different for you, Debbie, or for me, mm-hmm. and everybody's different, but we all have a passion, and I want people to find out what that is. Well, so that's, that's the story behind. And then the location is because this is actually my first directing film, but it's my fourth film that I produce mm-hmm. in Costa Rica. Uh, and why? Because such a beautiful place, like you said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's very American-friendly as well. And prices are, you know, pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, it has all the components. You know, I'm also the producer of the film, so I have to be careful with budget. So it fits, it fits the description, yeah. Well, one of the things that I love is that you did pick a librarian as your main character, played by Marsha Gay Harden, which I have to tell you, I think is Marsha's finest performance because we really oh, yeah. we see this incredible emotional arc and chameleonic physical transformation as well. And yeah. with a librarian, everybody can identify with a librarian, even in schools today where libraries have been getting the short shrift. You know, mm-hmm. just from movies and all, I think the seminal character everybody envisions is Shirley Jones as Mary and the librarian in The Music Correct. Man. They're mousy, they're very quiet, their head is always in a book, and they experience the world only on the page without ever living it. Correct. And to me, it was also an exercise to see what would happen when you juxtapose two very different characters, like she's in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, this very introvert person who... It's all about books and has no street culture with this other guy who's a Latino guy, extrovert, all street, no books, you know, and you put these two characters together and it's the possibility of people learning from each other. And we see that and we see that unfold as, you know, the character of Juan, beautifully played by Oscar uh, Haneda. Yes. I mean, just he is so full of life and energy, which is the perfect balance to Marsh's more timid Jane. And <laughs> yes. You, but you see him start as she's as he's opening up the world to her, 
he start, he gets opened up to the world of books. And then interestingly, what you have done is the character of Anna, Juan's daughter, played yes. by the adorable Jenna Ortega. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. She, the cute factor. The cute, we always call her. <laughs> she is the cute factor. She's great. But, because, you know, it is a challenge to write about uh, any depressive character, you know, because you ultimately always want to engage the audience. Mm-hmm. And if it's something heavy, and so you have to make sure that the script and the movie, it's balanced. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we have Juan, like you say, an extrovert with a lot of energy. And then Jenna, who's a wonderful, you know, young star, uh, who, by the way, just signed with Disney. And I think she's going to become a huge star. I, I and, agree uh, with you, Juan. Yeah, she's amazing. And, you know, she doesn't speak. This is an interesting trivia fact here. And when you see the movie, you'll be like, what? You know, for, for people, she doesn't speak any Spanish. And he doesn't speak any English. So oh it's all phonetics for the both of them. Wow. They're amazing mm. actors. All three of them. Unbelievable yeah. actors. Well, and what I love about the character of Anna is that she is the best of both worlds. She loves libraries, she loves books, but she also loves life. Yes. Yes, and also because, you know, like he, he's very Latino. Like mm-hmm. he says, sorry, we are Latinos, you know. And, and she's, you know, very, you know, like, you know the you know, quintessential American, you know, reserve with you, you know, you need your own space. And the girl, I think, it also represents the new generation mm-hmm. who... Maybe because of the internet, but they're in touch with the world, and they're beyond yeah. these stereotypes. You know, like she, she, you know, she, she, like she says, she studies American universities and on the internet, and she's aware of it. You know, she's she's in a small country, far away, but she's aware of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. very telling, uh, an adorable nod you put in there was where you have Anna when she thinks she's, you know after she's met Jane, and it's like, so nice to meet you, you know. I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. And Marsha's character, Jane, goes, I, I don't do the Facebook. <laughs> because, we, again, we take things for granted. And when we stay at home, and we only know our home and our job, and that's the only thing we know, it's a very limited vision of the world. Mm-hmm. And if we want, you know, we want a better world, and to me it's all about that. If, you know, I have kids, and if I can leave the world just a little bit better behind me, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be so happy. So, you know, I think it's important to get out there, to explore, and find yourself and find what you really like. Well, in your explorations, how did you find the specific locations for Afterwards? Because they are beautiful. They are stunning. The magic of the sunsets and the sunrises. But so finding those locations. You know how, in the same way that she discovered her her, her adventure, it's for me, to me, surfing. I'm a surfer. Oh. I surf. So I live in Venice Beach in California, and you know, which is perfect for me for work and for my sport. Mm-hmm. And I do travel. And then I went to Costa Rica once. Boom! I was like, this place is great, you know. And I made some other films there. Uh, and then when it was time for me to produce and direct and I was like I need to go to a place that I'm familiar with and I feel comfortable and I can afford it so I called back my friends there and I said guys I'm going back and okay round out the troops you know yeah so 
how did you legit when you were writing this script because it is so visual and it you know goes hand in hand with the emotion were you visualizing images that you wanted to capture absolutely absolutely yes and also you start visualizing those characters how they can interact with that you know backdrop mm-hmm. um, but again Costa Rica I think it offers so much um, so many good locations Mm-hmm. which actually they look great on film, but sometimes they're hard to capture in a way because, you know, it's so full of life mm-hmm. and that, you know, you have the cicadas being very loud mm-hmm. or the ocean being very loud. You have the, the everyday afternoon storm rolling in, getting you your beautiful blue sky turns dark, you know. So you have to be careful. You have to schedule for it properly. <laughs> it's, it's always a challenge, how, but it's great. How did you and Salvador go about, did you storyboard, did you shot list, and what? how logistically challenging was this? Because some of those locations that you're going to appear quite remote. Yes, they are. And actually, well, we, didn't do, we didn't have much planning on this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, he pretty much showed up the day before. And he left the, the same day that we wrapped. So um, I had to actually go back with a different crew and shoot some of the pickups. <laughs> um, you know, when you shoot the film, then, you, you know, I, I came back to Los Angeles. I did all prep and all post in L.A. I mm-hmm. wanted to keep it local. And, and I did. But so when I did the editing, I left some gaps that I went back to Costa Rica to fill specifically those shots that I needed. And, and again, planning, shooting in Costa Rica, or anywhere for that matter, any movie, you can plan up to a point. Mm-hmm. And it's true, fail to plan, plan to fail. So you have to plan, plan, plan. And then you have to be really creative to adapt and adjust to shoot. And, uh, and, and then um, the fact that we... Uh, we were able to shoot the whole thing in three weeks, which is where we had budget and schedule. It's also a miracle. We shot on one side of the of the country, and then when we went to the other side of the country, to the Caribbean side, mm-hmm. we hit the biggest storm they had in 11 years. Of course you did. <laughs> oh, my God. As every single you know, truck, we, we, we caravan across the country, and when we got to this little town, there's only one bridge that connects the town in. And as we're walking, you know, we're driving in, all of, all of us, buses, the crew, the cast equipment, and I'm the last car closing it in. And the picture vehicle is right before me. Mm-hmm. And our picture vehicle, that van that you see in the movie, breaks down on the bridge, blocking the bridge, the only entrance to the town. It's like, welcome, here we are, the Sun crew. So as it's raining and pouring, and it's just crazy. Well, of course, we're shooting the next day in the morning. So, you know, never a dull moment. Oh, my God. Well, you know, a, a standout element of this film, you talk about na- Mother Nature and the, and the cicadas and the sound of the surf and the sounds mm-hmm. from the rainstorms and all. Your sound design incorporates all of those elements, so it becomes a, a mm-hmm. truly sensory experience but then you also have Andrew Gross has mm-hmm. composed beautiful, beautiful, a very eclectic 
score that also is yeah. fueled by the sounds of nature. Thank you, Debbie. I, I love when people appreciate that. And this, you know, uh, this character, it has an arc, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, where at the beginning she can't feel. She can't. She just can't. Uh, and then uh, I, I, I played with with the visual, and you have to be really detail oriented to notice that I did a color correction where the the colors are more saturated later than before. Mm-hmm. And same thing with the sound. Uh, the sound design was made by Ed Callahan. It's an old timer. He worked for Coppola, for George Lucas back in the days in the sixties and seventies, and he's really really good. And we worked together hand to hand to create this thing where the sounds at the end of the movie are more predominant and she starts, you know, you basically see and hear through her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, like you said, Andrew Gross, amazing composer, oh. and with the same elements that, you know, the same, same concept of having more elements later than before. So at the beginning, we don't have anything too crisp. We don't have any symbols. We don't have anything too... To, to happy and sharp, and towards the end you can start sensing all those sounds mm-hmm. as well. And it's it's it goes hand in hand. It's analogous to her to Jane's awakening and her embracing life mm. and and, be, and becoming more aware of the things around her. Correct. I mean, and it, I hope people can relate. And I think that's the beauty of this. And I hope people can see that that this relates to all of us. Oh, with In every given day. We can be more in touch or not with life. And some people just never attain it in their lifetime. And this is what I'm trying to prevent. Everybody is responsible for your own life. You have to live life before you die. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this afterwards shows that and tells it so eloquently. It is. Thank you. I have to say it's one one of my happiest surprises of the year, Juan. Oh, my God, Debbie, thank you. I mean, I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, when me neither. Me neither. When, 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 Kim, <laughs> when Kim brought the film to my attention, and then when I watched it, it was truly one of the happiest surprises of the year for me. Mm, I appreciate that. I mean, I, as a first feature for you directing, mm-hmm. it, 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 trust me, it does not look like a first feature. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, to me, uh, uh, I first had to do this as an exercise to see if I could tell a story, mm-hmm. and and in the most you know uh, non pretentious way. Um, you know, I love uh, the fact. That, I mean, I love. I always love the audiovisual and how the juxtaposition of images moves the story forward, and always respecting the audience because I do respect your time and everybody's time. If you give me an hour and a half of your life. It's huge for me. So I, I, I hope people can take something from this. Juan, I will give you an hour and a half of my life anytime if everything <laughs> you do is this thank fabulous. Mm, thank you. Juan, I can't thank you enough. Afterwards, mm. in theaters and VOD this Friday the 21st, and I hope you will come back again and talk to us thank again. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm so happy and grateful that this film is in theaters. Yeah. All across the U.S., uh, starting Friday, like you said, and also for people cannot, you know, they're in small towns or they can't go to the big city to see a film. It's on iTunes, it's on VOD, like you said. Check your listings. 
I just want these messages to be spread but let, as far reached as possible. But let me say, the bigger the screen, the more you're going to love this film. I agree. <laughs> and there's something about being in that, you know, call me old school, but being in a big black box with people, with, with strangers, people you don't know. There's something about that as well. Oh. Yes. Juan, thank you so much. And we will talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. And that was Juan Feldman. And so we're going to jump. We don't need a battery change, so I'm just going to jump right in here with my favorite people right now. Is that, who's that, is that Ian? I'm here, Debbie. Hello, my darling. Um, Hi, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on the show. I just want to say that uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be on and I'm so happy. Thank you. Oh, do, do, he's playing producer right now, people. Just so you know, we don't talk like that to each other in real life. Um, all right. Now I'm trying to see. I'm trying to figure out. Brian? Brian, I'm trying to. Are you going to link my calls? Yes. I'm trying to get Brian to link Carl. Carl's there. You, I am, I'm here. How are you doing, Debbie? And Noah's there. Yep, I am. Yay! They're all here. Well, since I didn't talk to any of you boys after last night's screening of the Canary at Holly Shorts, let me just say I am beyond intrigued. Noah, your visuals are stunners. Your growth and diversity as a cinematographer since the work you did for Matthew on Fat Kid Rules the World, gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much. Gorgeous. So let me start with Carl. Where, briefly, tell everybody what this story is about. And, of course, you can give the plug for what's going to come after this short. Um, <laughs> and how, the, how you came up with this. Because this takes us back to, to a time, the gold rush time, the Old West, something that everybody is really craving, that we've seen the Australians and the, and the New Zealanders turning out in films, but not necessarily our own American directors. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, I've always been a fan of the American directors that have, that have played in this genre. Um, although when I, when I kind of approached it, um, I didn't really think of it as a Western right out of the gate. What I, what I really was inspired by was trying to explore that feeling of having kind of missed the moment. Um, you know, you see in our sort of current day people experiencing this, a gold rush of sorts in the tech world. Uh, or in the world of oil, um, or before that, and, and I think that I wanted to go back and explore some of these contemporary themes of, of when is it when is it the time to throw in the towel, or when is it the time to go for broke, and and try to find a, a way to explore that emotion through through the context of history. Um, so as I was approaching this, I really wanted to more lean into to the, the genres of thrillers and horrors. Um, because I did realize, like, I was kind of playing against the backdrop of a Western, but I didn't want to fall into this kind of the tropes and, and uh, sort of the plot types of the traditional Western. So that's, that's kind of where it came from. That was the, the inspiration behind it. And in large part, the inspiration also kind of came about because of discovering this town of Bodie, mm-hmm. um, which is an actual gold rush town in Northern California um, that is currently a state park, and it's preserved kind of in this, it's like an arrested decay. Uh, part of the town is, is kind of held in the, in the way that it was left in 1920 uh, when people finally stopped living there. And then parts of the other town have been allowed to uh, sort of wither and, and decay. And so I, I found it to just be this very beautiful, uh, somewhat haunting kind of a backdrop to tell this story against. 
And Noah, what kind of field day is that for you as a cinematographer to be given this beautiful, picturesque palette to work with, and then your only real pop of color is that little yellow canary? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Carl had a very strong visual concept when he had the script, and it's such a evocative landscape, you know, we're getting a, to work in an ama- abandoned ghost town, we're getting to work in a, uh, a mine and try to figure out that and be able to, you know, I mean, it's just very rich in opportunities photographically, so, you know, I mean, we uh, we actually went up and we did a little pre-scout when we were, because I don't know if you know that this film was cr- uh, crowdfunded through Seed and Spark. Yes, um, I, I do know that because Ian made sure that gave me enough info so I could go looking. <laughs> well, we so we went on like a pre-scout sort of to, you know, we, we were able to get Matt O'Leary involved very early and he and Carl hit it off and we did a we did sort of a scout slash shoot to get some winter footage which actually exists in the in the movie but um, also kind of get our bearings for for Bodie and and work together as a, a very slim team, but we, you know, it was very cool to be able to see it in multiple seasons, because I don't think a film of this side generally gets to have that um, diversity of landscape where we were able to to shoot winter and, um, I guess, you know, summer, fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'm a huge fan of running water, so being able to shoot on a creek for a day was, <laughs> uh, was a blast. I'm actually, right now, I'm out in Wyoming. Uh, I used to be a fishing guide, so that was something that I thought was pretty pretty neat opportunity. So. Oh, cool. Now, I understand. I think we have some another member of the team who popped in here. Um, Bert, can you guys hear me? I can hear you, Bert. Okay, good, because I, I was on the call earlier, and I, I just heard you guys, but I don't think you could hear me. Oh. Okay, so... You're, so now we've got four of you here with this with, with this great ex, this great experience. Uh, Ian, don't laugh. Um, with this great experience of the canary. So, from a producing standpoint, how do you gentlemen go about bringing this film to life and making that crowdfunding decision? Because with all the crowdfunding sources out there, how you arrived at the at the selection you made with Seed and Spark. Bert, you um, want to talk about that think, a little bit? Since it, was, it was Bert who actually introduced us to Season Spark um, as we were sort of going down that crowdfunding decision. So how do you... I mean, and, and then for me, I mean, it was ultimately it came down to the, uh, to, to the content, to the script, and, um, and, and getting to know Carl and um, finding ways that we can, you know, support his vision. I mean, ultimately that was it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but speaking to Seed and Spark specifically, I think the decision for us was that, you know, uh, nothing against Kickstarter or Indiegogo, they're, they're terrific websites. What we really were, were interested in with Seed and Spark is they, they specifically curate their, their crowdfunding to filmmakers. And uh, as we were exploring different options, both from a sort of a, a fee perspective, just candidly, the economics are more compelling uh, with Seed and Spark than they are with the other two platforms right now. Mm-hmm. And then we also found that Eric and Emily, who are the uh, heads of Seed and Spark, um, were just really uh, collaborative and, and very uh, helpful in terms of sort of orchestrating a crowdfunding uh, raise. Um, just a lot of pointers about how to reach out to the social media uh, community and, and really 
uh, honestly, the, the, the pre-production for this movie kind of began a month before our crowdfunding even started, mm-hmm. um, because it, it actually takes quite a bit of planning to even launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Um, no, no, but they, we we were very fortunate and had a terrific uh, you know outpouring of support from our friends and family and the sort of filmmaking community through Seaton Spark. So um, we were able to raise our production budget and get off to the races. And Panavision was also um, extremely supportive. We couldn't have made this uh, at the level that we did without their their support. So. What did you yeah. What did you shoot this on? What kind of lenses did you use, Noah? Uh, we shot on you know sort of I guess. Panavision now has a line of P vintage lenses, which are all rehoused lenses from you know the the 80s, and we, we shot on the non rehoused <laughs> lenses. Um, so you know we were we were shooting on basically super speeds mm-hmm. from uh, quite a quite a few years ago, and they they were coated lenses. And Carl and I did um, we did a we did a pretty extensive lens test. And one of the things mm-hmm. that from that lens test that we decided was that um, even though we liked the 235 aspect ratio, that we were both really drawn to that spherical lens look, mm-hmm. especially with flares and uh, depth of field and things like that. And so, you know, we were very lucky to get in and, and do that and take a look because I feel like even in the feature world now with independent movies, there's just less and less time. Um, before the you know the boat's already going down the river to be able to get a chance to to test and shoot test. So mm-hmm. um, Carl and I we were looking at things like flares and also how you know we knew that one of the things that would be um, not necessarily a challenge but an element in the cave would be um, a point source of light of the lantern. And we were both very worried because you know some of the the vintage lenses that are uncoated are really beautiful, but what happens is you get a ghosting. And because we knew we were going to have that really, in the cave, that strong point source, we were very worried about um, sort of multiple ghosting reflections within the lens. So that was a big determining factor of sort of how vintage do we go, how funky do we go. And Mm -hmm. so I think we let, you know, let that guide us to a place that um, I think works really, really nicely in terms of the glass. And it's interesting that, that you say that now. I just talked to Bobby Bukowski at length yesterday uh, for the work he just did on Oren Moverman's latest film with Richard Gere, and he went with the Hawk V-plus anamorphs. Uh-huh. And because their big thing with the Hawk V-plus is the anamorph element is in front of the spherical elements, which gives mm-hmm. you that nice, soft you know, edging on the sides. You get your depth of field, your distinct plane of focus, your streaks and flares and elliptical. So, I mean... A lot is to be said for these vintage lenses that are out there. Oh, totally. I think, you know, I mean, it's it's fun. You know, I think that digital photography has had us working towards kind of, you know, digital photography has come along in the same point in which lenses for film cameras have been working towards sharper, sharper, sharper. So what's nice is that, you know, if you pair um, a, a digital sensor, which is inherently sharper, um, in different ways, you know, there, there's more digital elements, obviously, than film, and you pair it with lenses that are a little less sharp, you get, I think, a really nice result. But just in general, I mean, I tend to lean away to, from anamorphic and towards spherical because, to me, um, and I might be one of the very few cinematographers out there, you know, I think there's a, it's very in vogue right now, anamorphic, 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 mm-hmm. um, because on these digital cameras you get higher resolution because you're getting more pixels per, you know, 
for the sensor size. Mm-hmm. But um, I find the flares, the anamorphic flares that you know streak across the screen, I find them very mechanical. Mm-hmm. And what I love about spherical lenses is the way that they flare as a very natural feel to me. Um, so you know that's one of the things that I that I look at, and there are other ways to control depth of field mm-hmm. um, aside from from anamorphic. Even and anamorphic images are beautiful, but we just knew that with especially in the case of the canary that something that was going to have such a strong point source right. lighting tool like that lantern in the cave that we didn't want to have uh, any risk of you know mechanical looking flares or ghosting or anything like that. So now off topic of the film for one second, Noah, I just want to find out what do you think of the Zeiss super lenses? The Zeiss super speeds? Yeah. Um, I've used them throughout. I, you know, I mean, I, I like older Zeiss lenses, especially on the Arri Alexa. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a good, good combination. I shot um, a film called Cold Comes the Night on a set of super speeds, not Panavision super speeds, but you know, kind of lenses of the same era. And there's a certain quality of the glass of that day that, you know, I think is perceptible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much with. Um, color correction now and you know everything is going through a DI you can really manipulate the look but I think that uh, there is a certain quality and creaminess to those lenses when you shoot them a certain way that uh, that helps you at least get an image that's fun to start from Mm -hmm. so So. now back on to to the canary here was now I know this is now going to be made into a feature film thank God um, was it all? Was it always your intention, Carl, Ian, whichever one of you wants to jump in? Was it always your intention to eventually turn this into a feature? Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I've always, uh, I guess, looked at it. Shorts, shorts are, are amazing. They need to be kind of a compartmentalized story on their own. But I, I definitely always went into this thinking there was a larger story for Orville um, and, and also for Lemuel and Emmeline. I, I felt like the the backdrop and the tapestry of like the of the gold rush uh, still relatively unexplored in, in film and sort of the modern time mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I always kind of imagined this would be a proof of concept for for a larger vehicle um, essentially the prologue to to a future mm-hmm. now um, Ian, yeah no I was gonna say Ian let me ask you because you now have produced co-produced a feature before you, you just did it with mm-hmm. well, you just did it with a ram a ram um, which is still traveling, traveling all over the world and just is getting the best receptions everywhere. Um, what are your considerations if, in taking a short film and bumping it up in turning it into a feature? Well, you know, the biggest consideration really came because of Carl. Um, when I met Carl, I, I really liked his vision. Uh, and I think as a producer, I, I try to find people who I believe uh, I can grow with. Um, who I can go on a journey with. And I saw that Carl was kind of, uh, I, I think he's a visionary in, in, in the making of sorts. Um, he sees things in a very unique way, uh, and he's a true storyteller. And so uh, when I met with him and he told me the story of the canary, um, I instantly saw and instantly realized that this guy could, could take this all the way and that this could be a feature and that this would definitely want to be something uh, that I want to be a part of, telling this amazing historical story um, and having people like Noah and Bert involved uh, in Whitewater Films was almost a guarantee that we would have an incredible product. So uh, the consideration really came down to Carl. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if, if not for him, I can't, I, I can say I would not have been part of the project. Uh, he's, he's incredible. And, um, I would do another project with him at the, at the drop of a hat. Well, you are going to do the feature film, aren't you? I'm sorry. You are going to do the feature film. Oh, I hope so. Uh, we plan on, we plan on doing it together. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I do, I do hope to see that come together. Um, there's, there's some good movement in that direction. And, I know Carl says that he's working on uh, extending into the feature length, right? You're writing it right now, right, Carl? Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's been a, it's been a fun process to try to convert this into a full into a full feature. Um, there, the, the prologue of the Gold Rush uh, then moves to a contemporary story from, in the feature that um, juxtaposes kind of present day Bodhi with the past mm-hmm. and uh, plays plays a little bit with you know the, the genre of horror in terms of sort of psycho- psychological horror. And mm-hmm. the uh, the feeling of kind of slowly losing your losing your grasp on reality, um, so it, it's definitely throwing throwing a throwback to, to films like uh, The Orphanage or or before that The Shining. Um, so those those are kind of the inspirations. Those are big inspirations for me, both both the directors and the and the films themselves from a storytelling perspective. Um, I've always just found that idea of losing the idea of going 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 mad uh, and not knowing that you are maybe the maybe the scariest. A sort of emotion to for me personally to explore. Um, mm-hmm. So let me let me ask you, Carl, how much research goes into writing a script, and also visually in developing your visual tone and your production design mm-hmm. when history is involved? If you want to stay true to any of the elements of history, how much research do you do you delve into? I do a lot. Um, I read a, several several books on the Gold Rush. Um, I did a lot of research just sort of through the internet about the Bodhi, Bodhi specifically and the history of that town. Um, I was really looking for. It's, it's sometimes hard, you know. You read something that's just a, sort of a, a dense nonfiction about um, a time period or a place, and doesn't give you a sense of character. Mm-hmm. So I guess the hardest part in doing this research is really looking for um, anecdotal or True, true stories about gold miners and mm-hmm. what their lives were really like, and uh, sort of the, uh, the the real the realism like the realism behind that. Because I think we have we have an idea sort of through history books of what Manifest Destiny looked like and what the Gold Rush looked like. But um, it was important to me to try to drill down and and access the the authenticity of that to to the extent that we could from a production design perspective. We were a little limited. Um, in what we could do there because of budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to be very sort of crafty in between working with Ian and Bert to come up with like very effective ways to deploy our capital um, in, in the production design uh, so, that, so that it felt authentic on a, on a, on a budget. Um, and then also working with our production designer, Allison Fry, mm-hmm. who was just a rock star and, and was able to really meet all of the needs that we had as far as art direction goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, we were really fortunate, and uh, and I think we just made very specific choices that felt honest to us, and based on the, the research I've done, were honest sort of portrayals of what life was like back then, um, but without trying to go too far and have too many props and too much art direction, so that there were there were a lot of things that you could poke holes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of trying to avoid a, um, a nostalgic look. I mean, I think that that's something that Carl and I talked about a lot was trying to create a look that felt of of that uh, era visually, but not... Um, not like a postcard? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, something that felt organic, like you, you feel and you buy that time period, but not broadcasting that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we looked at a lot of visual references to try to try to find something that I think ended up having a very classic movie look, but not something that was too nostalgic that it brought attention to itself, if that makes any sense. No, I mean, you've got an extremely cinematic look. It's very cinematic. It has truly that John Ford kind of scope to it, which is something that I found to be one of the most impressive features about the short overall. Can we get oh, that right? That's, I, I mean, think that's, that's, that's a that's huge compliment. Thank you, compliment. We really appreciate that. Yes, you can get it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The things, the, the abuse I take from some of you, I'll tell you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I am so, I didn't know what to expect going into this short last night. And I have to say, Ian, you may have seen my Facebook post about just because there are iPhones and cameras out there does not mean people should pick them up and make a film. I was not in any way, shape, or form referring to the canary. But some of the other things, <laughs> some of the other things in, in your shorts block. It Holly shorts. I gotta wonder who ponied up the cash for those. Well, you know, I, I feel really fortunate to have been in, in this festival. I think that um, I, I've seen a lot of programs, and there's a, there's a tremendous amount of talent here. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in the program last night, I was really impressed. You know, some of the filmmakers coming from, especially uh, the, the sort of the foreign uh, markets, clearly didn't have uh, a huge budget, but I thought you could just, you could see budding talent there, especially like $600. It's played right before ours. Right. I felt like that director has such a command of comedy and, and sort of tension at the same time that usually may not translate when you're, when you're going from Spanish to English, you know, language mm-hmm. a lot of times, uh, is hard for, in, in, when it comes to comedy. Um, but I thought he just did a terrific job and I, I felt really like honored and humbled to be up there with some of those directors last night. Oh, I I just loved for six hundred dollars. I love the comedic beats in that one. Mm-hmm. They really yeah. and it lightened the whole that whole grouping. It lightened the tone of the whole grouping. Yeah, so I, I was I was feeling that too. Like kind of midway through the program, I'm like, oh, this is the uh, this is clearly not the feel good Sunday block or something. No, um, <laughs> well, we've been paired in Sarasota where we. Uh, premiered we were paired with a just a good old family incest film oh you know? good <laughs> yeah oh well yeah. that that's that's an interesting pairing of course could the incest have stemmed from somebody having too much gold that they accumulated during the gold yeah. rush <laughs> they, did, they, they, they did shoot somewhere up in northern california but uh i didn't get any sense that it was it was gold related um, but the, uh, yeah, the, the, the blocks we kind of fall into, it's fun for us because it's it a thriller and that, that was certainly the intent behind sort of what we're going for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm happy when I, when I see how it kind of like, I have all these different directors approach that genre from, I, I didn't want to approach it sort of like straight out of the gate. We're shooting in that kind of blue moody tone. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to sneak up on the audience a little bit and, um, I, you know, I was, I felt like watching how it played out last night. Um, it worked nicely uh, to juxtapose the other films that were in that block, which some of them really sat in the pocket of the thriller the whole time. And they were, they um, were predictable. With the, with the way we kind of approached it, which is to, you know, lead the audience down that rabbit hole and, and sort of bring them, get, get them into the feeling of anxiety without them really realizing it's coming. But what, um, what you did taking us into the rabbit hole, though, Carl, is you, we don't see that ultimate twist coming. 
as we're going into that rabbit hole. And that was one of the great standouts in the Canary, especially when you juxtaposition it against the other films that were in the Holly Shorts block, thriller block last night, because everything was predictable, 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 predictable with them. And yours was not. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say that. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, it's, it's always nerve wracking when you play for an audience and you're not sure how things will, uh, will resonate. So it's good to hear that. Thank you. So let me ask you, before I let you four lovely gentlemen go, what is, what is, it, what is the gift that filmmaking gives to each of you? Anybody want to jump on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll give a quick opening on that one. Um, you know, to me, to me, filmmaking is a chance to play in an imaginary world. Uh, sometimes the world that we live in can be harsh and it can be very difficult. Um, and for a little while, we get to go somewhere that isn't here and we get to make things the way we want to see it and the way we want to live it. Um, and to me, that's what filmmaking is, and it's, it's why I adore it so much. Um, I get to make believe every day, and I, I feel so lucky to be able to do that. Oops. Did we just lose everyone? Uh-oh, the phone system just went out. We just lost our phone system. So if everybody is... if. We apologize for that, but this is the the thrill of live radio and the joy of the phone company. So I'm sorry that we lost all of our guys. I will now have to give them profound apologies when I see them all in person. Um, And I will follow up with them and find out what is the greatest gift that filmmaking gives to all of them. Because it is something that's very interesting. And oh, I think somebody is calling back in. Who do we have? Who do we have? Somebody. Hello? Hello, sorry about that. <laughs> Who did it? Who did it? That was me. It was me. That was you that disconnected everybody, huh? Oh, is that what happened? Everybody. The phone system. The phone company oh, took no. the phone company took everybody down. Uh, we got to call AT&T. Uh, and, of course, and now we're at the end of the show, too. Oh, that's a bummer. So now I'm going to have to contact all of you just so I can get answers and put it on my website for everybody. Sure. Sure. Do you have everyone's uh, contact info? Ian's going to give it to me. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, it was so fabulous. Well, likewise. Likewise. Uh, I really enjoyed the the time and... And I hope that you will keep, you know, call back again as you get further along in the process of doing the feature. We'll definitely do that. Is anyone else on the? Am I the only one? You're the only one. You're the only one. Okay. Okay. I I got y'all. I just wanted to make sure that uh, I gave everyone an opportunity to to talk. So. No. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We'll we'll definitely keep you informed as we're as we're moving forward. And and again, thank you so much for taking the time and and doing the interview. Terrific. Thank you. And that's it for Behind the Lens. Till next week.